We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. You know, for so long, I, I began to do these podcasts and I got pretty comfortable in the, you know, getting those first few words out of like, what was I going to say? And I kind of got into a routine on that. I, I'm actually kind of nervous because it's been so long. I was like going through my mind of as that intro was playing of thinking like, what am I going to say? What am I going to? And, and I, I don't know. It's, it's been too long and kind of give you a heads up. We we finally got, if you listen to the last podcast that we did over Jude, and then I talked about what to expect on another one, um, we finally got this building dried in pretty much most every waking moment that I've had in spare time apart from work and ministry and um, hosting Bible studies and just trying to spend some time with my family. Um, most every waking minute has been trying to get this building dried in. So it has been dried in, and so I'm actually able to come down here, do a podcast, and continue this series of going through Jude. And I'm excited. I'm kind of nervous because it's been a while um, about you know going through this. Um, but I'm, I'm hopefully able to start slowing down a little bit on some of these other things. Uh, there have you know, been some stuff that's gone on the last several months or the last several weeks that have way too long to do this podcast and go into all that stuff. Just know that God is working on trying to bring restoration in my life in many ways, and He's bringing opportunities, um, even just as recent as just a few days ago, a possible opportunity for me to kind of get back up in the saddle, I guess, and use gifts that he's given to me, um, and be refined, be healed, and be an instrument of change for both him and me and me and others. And so um, I'm excited about that, but I don't, I don't want to go too much into what's going on in my life. I want to keep this pertinent to the Word so that hopefully that is something that can change your life. And so as I have already done one segment over Jude, um, I believe I went through one through four, and we almost took an hour to go through those four verses. I would highly recommend, if you are a first-time listener and you're just picking this up and you're like, man, who is this guy? Go back and listen to that one, uh, even maybe before you would listen to this one. Just turn this one off, go back, listen to the first segment I did on Jude. Because that is a um, a crucial one to set the tone and set the stage for what he's going to be going into. So I'm just going to get right into this, and um, we're going to try to get through verse 13. Again, I'm going to try to keep these at about 30 to 40 minutes, and I'm going to break this chapter down in hopefully three segments that's going to cover this book. So I'll get right into it. He says, I want to remind you. Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those 
who did not believe or who did not continue in their belief. I want that to be something that is clear on what's going on here because if you analyze the story, if you go through it, um, there were people who did believe. There were people who actually didn't get to inherit the promised land because they chose to actually dis, um, disengage, I guess you would say, from belief, or they got into disobedience, or they got into rebellion. And he's going to talk about this in several different ways. So I want, it to under, I want us to understand, going back and studying that time, there were people who did not get to enter the promised land, who did at one time believe, but afterward they refrained from it and they moved away from that. And that will hopefully make sense in a little bit as we kind of go over a few other elements in this. One of the other things I want you to see is that Jude is writing to believers. We talked about that in verse 1. It is crucial to understand that any time that he's referencing you, um, he is referencing believers, as he says, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That is a term and terminology that is used solely for the church, okay? So when he says, I want to remind you, that's who he's trying to remind. It's people who have been called, people who are called beloved, and who are kept for Jesus Christ. This is the church that he's writing to. So he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, although you once fully understood this concept, that even though these people were saved out of Egypt, they were punished in the end. Now, why would he be going into this? Well, I think a lot of the answers to that is found in 3 through 4. As he says, look, there are people who are going to try to creep in among you. There are people who are turning grace into sensuality. There are people who are um, giving people a license to sin or practicing lasciviousness or licentiousness. There are people who are denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They think that it's enough to just have Jesus as Savior. And I want to you, I want to remind you, beloved, that though you once fully knew that God is holy and that God will punish disobedience. Even though you've been saved, even though that it was the Kurios, the Lord who brought people out of Egypt and saved them, redeemed them, and brought them into this land in which they were journeying to go to the promised land. They were on this pathway to get there. They had been delivered and saved from Egypt. He says afterward, when they chose not to continue in their belief, he destroyed them. And I want you to understand this because I want you to not take lightly this concept. Though you once fully knew it and were aware of how holy God is. Just as he says in Hebrews 10, 26-31 where he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, notice the author includes himself in that passage. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or those who oppose holiness and righteousness and God's holy standard in obedience. He goes on and says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. Those are two very distinct um, statements that make it clear that the author of Hebrews is including himself and writing to the church of those who have been saved because it says that they have been sanctified. Well, there's only one group of people who have been sanctified from past sins, and that's the church. 
And he says, and it'll be worse punishment for you if you choose to walk away from un- or from your belief and choose a pathway of disobedience that's in line with your flesh. And I believe that Jude is trying to warn these believers of saying, you once fully understood this. But I want to remind you to make sure that you still fully understand this. Listen to the next analogy he gives. He says, look, not only did did this take place with the, the people of God who were brought out of Egypt and delivered from Egypt and saved, as the word that he uses here, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, those same people that he saved, destroyed those who did not believe or continue in that pistis or that pistio. And the angels, let's check this one out. He's given another illustration of people who were in a position with God, but chose to relinquish that position with God of what ultimately happened to them. He's trying to give them a warning and a severe warning to make sure that they are fully in remembrance that God is holy and that God yearns jealously for the spirit that he causes to dwell in us, as James 4 talks about. He says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, until the judgment of the great day. Two illustrations, one a physical and one a spiritual. A physical one of people who were saved, who were God's people, and he delivered them and brought them out of this land of Egypt, the tyranny and the the oppression that Egypt was putting upon them. He delivered them and he saved them. He rescued them. And they didn't continue in their belief. And so they were destroyed. Angels. A spiritual representation of this. The angels who were with God in his presence. They chose not to stay within that position. And they also were destroyed. Kept in eternal chains of gloomy darkness until that judgment day. They have no hope in this world. They do not have a chance of redemption. They have been given their opportunity and they wasted it. He goes on and he says... "Um, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Who are they serving as an example to? You remember who he's writing to and what verse 5 says? I want to remind you. It says that these these, uh, men and women in Sodom and Gomorrah, they serve as examples to you, beloved. Of what happens when God gets a hold of you according to his wrath. Just as it says, and I think it's in Ephesians 3, maybe it's the beginning of Ephesians 5. I think it's Ephesians 5. It says that, that God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3-9 talks about the coming of Christ when he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.36 says that if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, there's these these, um, things that are happening in which 
Jude is trying to give these believers an example to say, look, those things that happened of old, they were written down for our instruction so that we might not desire evil as they did and perished. If you want, you can flip with me um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read this real quick. And you can read 1 through 5 and you can kind of see how it's talking about a physical portrayal of what took place was actually a spiritual reality for us that we have written down as they followed the rock, right? It says all are the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now here's what I want you to hone in on because I believe this is what Jude is doing here. Is he is trying to remind these beloved the holiness of God and the jealousy of God over the spirit that he makes to dwell in us. He says, now these things took place as examples for us. He doesn't say you. He doesn't say them. He doesn't say anything. He includes himself, Paul. He includes himself and says, those things that happened to God's people under the old covenant, they happened as an example for us under the new covenant who are saved by the blood of Christ, who have been redeemed and purchased not from Egypt, but from our own flesh, who have been given um, victory and dominion over the Philistinian armies that constantly tried to berate us. And for them, that was a physical thing. For us, it's the demonic enemy that tries to um, bombard our soul and gain entrance into this land that's been purchased by blood. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul is including himself, guys. And he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Always a statement that's littered throughout scripture. That means that a people, um, they stopped doing what they were supposed to. And they started feasting and living it up on the things of this world. They sat down. They stopped walking out this life. They stopped doing what they were supposed to with God. They stopped walking in righteousness and walking in the footsteps of faith and walking in holiness. And instead, they sat down and thought, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy things for a little while. I'm going to eat, drink, and find my happiness in the things of this world. And he says, we, Paul includes himself again, must not indulge in sexual morality. Didn't that uh, come through on this other one? Psalm Gomorrah, which indulged in sexual morality. Remember, these things are written to the beloved so that we would fully keep in remembrance how God treated those that he saved through Egypt, those who he saved, uh, or those what happened to the angels who did not stay in their proper position, and what happened to Psalm Gomorrah. He goes on back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, this is a message in which Jude is writing to the beloved. And he says, look, I know that at one point you fully knew that God is holy. And he expects holiness from his saints. 
from his beloved. But I want to remind you again that the things that happened of old are actually serving as an example for us, even under this new covenant in the blood of Christ, and especially under the blood of Christ. I think sometimes as a church we've gotten into this ideology that because Christ came onto the scene, all of a sudden God's taking it easier on us. Like, oh, I've got Christ, I've got his blood. And that's actually not the case. Remember what I just quoted in Hebrews 10? It says, anyone who um, uh, set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? You see, the stakes have actually gotten higher because the blood in which has been spilled for our sins is of greater value to God than the blood of bulls and goats. So if you think that you can go eat, drink, and be merry and just say, oh, you know what, it's easier to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission. Well, let me just tell you, you're going to come under punishment because God does not take it lightly when we take lightly His Son's blood. He goes on in this passage. He says, yet in like manner, these people who are creeping in among you, remember, the whole concept of this is, I'm wanting you to fully understand that God is no respecter of persons, and especially to somebody who's going to abuse the blood of his son, the eternal covenant, as Hebrews 13 puts it towards the end. He is no respecter of persons, whether you're in him or whether you're not. Whether you're part of that Psalm of Gomorrah, the people who were not part of God's people, and yet they abused, they got punished. The angels who were there in God's presence, they didn't stay in their proper position in a spiritual representation of things. He says they got punished. And the people in whom the Lord saved, coming out of Egypt, they got punished too. God's no respecter of persons. Whoever is going to disacknowledge the blood of Christ and treat it as something as common or even profane, there will be punishment. And it does not matter if you're his people or if you're not, because the end of Hebrews 10, 26-31, it even says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Where do you think they're falling from? And it actually says the Lord will judge his people. Now, some of this might be new to you. This might be a, a new concept. And, and I'll be honest with you. When I first started getting into the Word, I was raised Baptist. I mean, I had the concept of once saved, always saved. I, I, I had all this terminology thrown at me, and I didn't even know there was anything different because I never read for myself. And when I started getting into the Word for myself, and I went to God with the mentality and the motivation of saying, God, I want you to just teach me what your Word says. I don't want any preconceived ideas. I don't want any preconceived notions. I don't want a doctrine that I has been developed in me through men. I just simply want what your Word says, and I am not going to show partiality towards anything. I do not care what I want. I don't care what I want Scripture to say. I want to know truth. And I want it in the deepest parts of my heart to be nestled down there so that nothing else would remove that from who I am. And he answered me. Just as he says he did, you know, in Jeremiah 33.3, and he says, call to me and I'll show you those things that you have not known. And he began to unveil things to me that I had never known. And it took me five years 
of studying anywhere from probably three to seven hours a day. And when I say studying, I'm not, I'm not just talking about flippant reading for three hours of just going through a book and then falling asleep halfway through. I mean, God worked in me this desire and insatiable desire to know his word and to study it. I mean, I was doing, uh, I, was, I was studying and it took me five years to overcome the belief of once saved, always saved. It took me five years to overcome the belief that all my past, present, future sins were wiped away. That when God sees me, all he sees is the blood of Christ. He doesn't see my failures. He doesn't see my sins. He doesn't see any of that stuff. All he sees is the blood of his son. And let me just tell you, that is heresy. It is not the scripture's revelation of truth. There are too many things that do not fit in with that. And I'm here to tell you right now that what Jude is trying to remind the beloved of God here in this, and, and by the way, yes, I've read First John, I've read through First John probably 15, 20 times in studying over that book. I've taught over that book many, many times. And I know there's probably somebody out there who's more Calvinistic in their thought, more Baptist in their doctrine, and they're trying to say, oh, I guess he's never really read John 10, 26 and 27. I guess he's never really read through First John chapter 2 and 3. Yes, I have. And I would actually rebuttal that and say, I don't believe you've ever actually entertained the notion of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Or what Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 talks about. Or Matthew 10, 22. Or Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Or Romans 8, 17, which says that we must suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with him. I would argue that maybe you've never read those or at least even entertained the notion of their truth and how they actually fit with the rest of Scripture. My point in all of this is to try to show you and urge you, just as Paul did many, many times, including 1 Corinthians 10, to understand that God is holy and righteous and he is jealous for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That is a reference to believers because we are the only ones who have the Holy Spirit living in us. Romans 8, 9 says that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if you have the spirit of Christ, that means you belong to him. And God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's why he calls it adultery. Whenever we choose to go and be friends with the world, James 4, 1 through 8. James urges the believers to repent if they're in that. Because God is jealous over the spirit that he makes to dwell in us. And in this passage, he's giving them a reminder of saying, I want to make sure you fully understand that these people who are coming in and turning the grace of God into sensuality, they will be judged. Do not allow it to take place inside your love feasts. And don't do it yourselves, because the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. I believe that's the message that Jude is writing here. He goes on, he says, Yet in like manner, these people, these ones who are coming in at your love feast, they're eating with you without fear. They don't fear God, they just think that Jesus is Savior and that God is their buddy. He says, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams. Now, that's a Greek word. It's very difficult for me to pronounce. Um, and I had it pulled up, and I'm not going to spend time trying to do that. 
but the the Greek word that's used there is one that means they are carried away to impious and course of conduct. That they're led astray by their flesh. So it's not just they're they're just relying on their dreams. They're like, oh, God gave me a dream, and so I'm I'm going to go do this because I believe that was from Him. That might be part of it. But the word that's used there more so implies a connotation of they are led by their flesh. They're led by what they want out of life and what they want to do. And that is what directs them and governs them is the flesh. And what does Galatians 6, 7-10 say? And Paul, even in referencing himself, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. And that's exactly what these people are doing. And in my estimation, people who preach the, the notion of once saved, always saved, absent of repentance, are doing the same thing. The people who are saying, you know what, when God sees you, he doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see your sin. All he sees is the blood of Christ. So you know what? You go out there and you live your life because God's already won it for you. I recently heard a quote by Max Lucado that said the same thing. And there's a lot of things that he says that I'm right on board with. But that's not one of them. Galatians 6, 7-10 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For to whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. Notice, you have to do something to reap that eternal life. You already have the promise when you've come into Christ, but you have to endure to the end in order to receive what is promised. Hebrews 10.36, Matthew 10.22. Go look them up. And he goes on, he says, um, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap, Paul includes himself, if we do not give up. What did he say in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27? He talks about where he says, I exercise self-control. Why does he do that? Why does he discipline his body? Because he says, lest after preaching to others this gospel message of Jesus Christ, then being saved myself, lest after preaching to others that I myself would be disqualified if I choose to sow to the flesh. Paul says, and we will reap this eternal life. It has been promised to us. It is ours to lose, if you will. It has been given to us through Christ, but it is ours to maintain as we maintain our position in Jesus Christ. It's not about doing enough works and not doing enough bad works. It is about maintaining your position in Jesus Christ and the faith that you have in who He is as the Lord of your life. You maintain that position that God made a covenant with Christ and all who would be in Christ on that last day would find that eternal life. Paul says that we will reap that eternal life if we do not give up. Again, he includes himself. He doesn't say, if you don't give up, as if it was a test that you were really saved. He says, if we. Because I also could be disqualified from this race if I choose to give up. And I believe that's what Jude is trying to write here to these believers of saying, look, these guys are creeping in among you. And you need to put a stop to the things that they're saying and the things that they're doing before you are led astray with them. And I want you to remember the holiness of God and how He will execute judgment even on His own people if you choose to walk in unbelief. Look at what He says in Hebrews chapter 2. And I don't remember exactly how it starts, so I'm going to have to turn to it real quick. But in Hebrews chapter 2, 
It says, therefore we, notice the author again, includes himself. These things are crucial to pay attention to. If he were to say, therefore you must pay closer attention, I could see how a Calvinist might look at that and say, see, he's just saying they might not actually be saved. But the author includes himself in this. He could have very easily used a different word that was used there. But instead he uses Hamas. And it means we. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, meaning under the old covenant, how shall we, under the new covenant, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Same message. The author is trying to urge them, implore them, and exhort them to not forget that God is going to judge his people and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he goes on, he says, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones, which is a Greek word, doxa, which is the state of being glorious or blaspheming the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not just angels, it's not just, you know, that it's anything that belongs and is, it has the connotation of belonging to the kingdom of heaven. They blaspheme them, just like Luke 12 talks about when it says that they beat and, and persecute the male and female servants. The servant who used to actually be friends with them chose to eat, drink, and be merry. You can go look at it, I think it's Luke 12, I think it's like 42 through 48. It's the servant who thought his master was delayed and so he began to beat the male and female servants. He began to eat, drink, and be merry. And he just said, you know what? I'm done serving this God. I'm done doing what he wants me to. I'm going to live it up, do what I want to. After months or years or whatever it might be of serving him, he actually began to then persecute the glorious ones. The kingdom of heaven. And it says, and these people are doing the same thing. The people who are standing for truth, the people who are living out that life, they're the ones who are out there saying, what are you doing, dude? Don't you know God loves us no matter what you do, what you don't do? Don't you know His love is unconditional? That's a whole other topic that we could go into because I don't believe that it is unconditional. But these people are just simply turning grace into sensuality and a license of sin to say that grace is what covers my sin. I'm sorry, that's not what grace is. And I'm not sure who lied to you or if you are part of the ones who are lying to yourself. That's not what grace is. That's mercy. That's not grace. Grace is not God overlooking your sin. It's Him enabling you to overcome your sin. And there is a big difference between that. And these people are turning grace into simply God overlooking all of your sin. You can fail all you want to. You can sin all you want to. I mean, do your best. But you know what? The reality is you're just going to be a sinner saved by grace. That's all you're going to be. You'll never be able to amount unto perfection. You'll never be able to fully imitate Jesus. On this life, you're just going to be a sinner saved by grace and a servant to your flesh. Totally misunderstanding what the end of Romans 7 is saying. And he says, and you need to silence these people. And you better not become imitators of them. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael understood his place was not to go out and to rebuke Satan. 
and to bring condemnation upon him in the sense that he says, you know what? Hey, your time's now. Remember the demons came to Jesus and they said, um, has our time come? Right? I'm paraphrasing what the conversation was like and Jesus is like, no, no, your time's not yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. That's never our prerogative to do. It is not our prerogative whether it's to avenge anything physically or spiritually even. We can have authority over the spiritual, but it is not our prerogative, nor is it our place to tell Satan that he needs to go to hell. Or tell the demons that it's time for them to go to hell. That is not our place, that is God's. That's why it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus even, it says that he did not do anything like that. And I'm paraphrasing, it said that he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. God is the one with that authority. Not me. So Michael didn't even pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan himself. He just simply said, you know what? My hands are off of this. This is in God's hands of what he wants to do to you. The Lord will rebuke you. I don't need to. And I think we need to be careful of when we begin to step outside of our bounds and we try to play God as if we're the ones who determine who gets to live and die and who gets to go to hell and who gets to go to heaven. That is not our place in any way, shape, or form. People talk about justice all the time. It's like, man, I'm so glad they got what they deserve. Let me just put, get, get on, a, on a high horse real quick. What if you got what you deserved? I mean, you would listen to this and, and you might be somebody who would call themselves a Christian. What would happen if you got what you deserved? I could tell you what it was. You wouldn't be in Christ. You wouldn't even have the access to salvation. God wouldn't have even sent his son for you. Because what you deserve, what I deserved, was hell. Because I was a sinner. I was somebody who mocked God. I was somebody who, who because simply of the sin nature of being born into Adam, I was hostile to him. I deserved hell, but God being rich in mercy. Chose not to enact justice upon me. But rather gave me an opportunity to know him and be restored in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. So let me just tell you, before you want to go out there and try to play God apart from the cross of Jesus Christ and the example that we have of who we need to live by and under, before you try to go out there and be God, maybe you need to look at your own life and say, what if you got what you deserved? And then go apply that to other people. He said, the Lord rebuke you. In verse 10 it says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals, which is the Greek word, fust, fust, ah, I can't even say it, fusikos, physically or naturally minded or carnal. It means that they are temporarily, or um, their mindsets are carnal, it's natural, it's physical. Everything about them is they cannot see through the lens of anything other than a physical lens of what's in front of their eyes. You remember Elisha and his servant? I mean, it was Elijah. Now, all of a sudden, drawing a blank on that. But whenever he was scared, he was terrified of the war that was coming. And he prayed and he said, God, open his eyes so you can see that those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And all of a sudden, he sees the chariots of, of, of fire on the, on the hilltops. There are people out there who all they see is the physical. 
They live for the physical. They dwell in the physical. Their minds cannot entertain anything spiritual. I see it in the church all the time. I see it from the pulpit all the time. I see it, people, even as something as simple as people who are thinking that Israel and the Jews are still God's people. And they don't see that there's actually a heavenly Jerusalem and a spiritual priesthood and a spiritual people. It's called the church. It's no longer about an old covenant that was a physical covenant that God made with physical people here on physical earth, with physical sacrifices and physical priesthoods and physical temples. He's now made a spiritual covenant with Christ and all who enter into him get to take part in this covenant. And we become a spiritual priesthood and we become the spiritual temple and the heavenly Jerusalem as Hebrews 12 says, therefore God does not have a nation here on earth that are his people. His nation is the people who are in his son. Where there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And if you don't understand that, then maybe you also are looking at things through a natural lens. And maybe you're more in line with the people that he's warning them about than the people who he's writing to in the Beloved. He goes on and he says, um, they understand instinctively, as I just talked about. It says, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. So now he's not talking to the believers here. He's talking to these people who are creeping in among them. Now you can make a very strong case that these are apostates. You can make a strong case that these are people who never knew God. Wherever you might fit in this, don't miss the overarching theme of what he's trying to write to these believers. Be on guard. And watch out for people like this who are going to lead you astray with false teaching, false motives, and false humility. He says, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. To Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now those are three things in which Cain, who became a wandering star because he killed his brother... Right? What did Jesus talk about? I just quoted this one the other day of somebody that if you um, cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck than if, you, than if I were to get a, a hold of you. He says, go ahead, tie the millstone around your neck, throw yourself in the ocean. Because if I get a hold of you, it's going to be worse for you. Do not cause one of my little ones who believe in me to sin. So Cain, obviously, kills Abel, his brother. And he became a wandering star with no purpose or hope in life, as God tells him in Genesis. He says, you know what? You're going to be a wandering star. You will not have a home because one day you're just going to die. And this is not your home and heaven can't be your home. You are a wandering star. And Balaam is a guy who loved gain from wrongdoing, as Second Peter 2 tells us. And recounts the story briefly of the fact... And a lot of people don't understand this one. It took me a long time to understand it. But God gave Balaam a very specific instruction. Do not curse my people. Don't do it. I don't need to tell you anything else. I've given you my word. Oh, well, then he, he doesn't curse the people. And they come to him and they're like, hey, would you curse the people for us? He's like, nah, no, God told me not to curse the people. I'm not going to do it. And he goes, okay, well, let me up the ante and I'm going to offer you more. And he comes and he says, even if you would offer me your house with silver and gold, I believe it's in Genesis 17 where it talks about this. He says, I'm not going to curse them. However, I know what God told me, but that's pretty enticing. Let me go back to God 
and find out what he wants me to do. He was lured for the sake of gain away from the word of God that was spoken to him. So God simply says, okay, that's how you want to play it. Go ahead and go with them. So Balaam's like, hey, I'll go with you. And then God says that his anger was kindled against him because he actually went. And a lot of people are like, why would God get angry at him for just simply doing what he told? Because he didn't do what he was told at first. It was a very clear command. But for the sake of gain, he chose to question the word of God. And he enticed that temptation into his life and actually went back to God to see if there was a way he could have it. Same way as what happened with, um, I believe it's in, um, uh, what book is that in? Um, why am I drawing a blank? Like, why would God bring that story to my mind? And now I can't think of the guy's name. Dipped himself in the, in this, in the Jordan seven times because Elijah told him that he needed to go do that. Um, oh my goodness, why can't I not think of his name? Anyways, I'll tell you the story. I just, for whatever reason, can't tell you where the reference is or what even the name of the guy is. Um, but he goes and he's, he wants to dip in the good rivers. He's like, why can't I go dip in these? Because he had leprosy. And he wanted to go dip in those two. And he's like, nope. And it's the Jordan or nothing. Go dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be cleansed from your leprosy. So he goes down and he does it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seventh time he comes up, leprosy's gone. Well, he has the servant who sees all this stuff and actually was encouraging him to do it. Well, this guy, he wants to give, as Elijah or Elisha, I don't remember which one now, he wants to give him um, like silver and gold and all this stuff. And he's like, nope, I don't want it. I don't want any of that stuff. Well, his servant, his servant saw it. And he actually went back to the prophet and he says, you know what? My, my master will take that. And he wanted it for himself. So he got the, the funds and he went back. And when God discovered this, it says that the leprosy that was on him shall now be on you. And it's the same way with Balaam. He loved gain from wrongdoing. He questioned the word of God and gave in to the temptation and went after that temptation at the expense of listening to God. It says these people are the same way. Korah, Korah's rebellion, very similar. Remember what it says, they reject authority. Korah's rebellion, I believe in number 16. It says that Korah, being a cousin to Moses, so the family was involved in this one, came up, him and Dathan, they trounced in front of Moses and they said, Moses, we don't need to listen to you. Who made you an authority over us? We're all holy. We're all good. We don't need to listen to you. I'm not going to sit here and let you tell me what to do as an authority over my life. So Moses goes to God. He's like, God, what do we do? He's like questioning me in front of everybody. He's rejecting authority. God says, you separate from him. I want everybody separated from him. Dathan, their wives, their children, their livestock, their goods, possessions, everything. Get away from them. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. And if if they're destroyed, (coughs) excuse me, in a way that's... Normal has happened before, then you can know that I'm not with you. But if I destroy them in a way that is new, then you know that I'm with you. So Moses declares this and he separates from them. And all of a sudden, Korah and Dathan and all their wives, their children, their livestock, their possessions, everything. They're just sitting there and all of a sudden the ground opens up 
swallows them whole, and covers over top of them. And I'm sure the people are all like, Moses, we'll do whatever you tell us to. But that's what happened in Korah's rebellion. They didn't want authority. They didn't want people over them telling them what to do. They thought that they could be their own authority. And that is a dangerous thought process. He goes on and he says, these are hidden reefs. You can imagine a hidden reef in the open ocean. Think of the Titanic. This reef that is in the ocean that ships are just going unbeknownst to them. It's a hidden reef. And what does it do? It causes shipwreck. That's why Paul talks about it with Timothy when he says there are certain people who are making shipwreck of their faith. Your faith can be shipwrecked by hidden reefs. And that's what Jude is warning these people about. He says, and they're at your love feast. You guys are feasting at these love feasts in which you are giving this honor and glory and worship to God. And these people are among you and you're not doing anything about it. You're letting them be there because you think that that's what witnessing is and evangelizing. You're putting your body at stake. He says, you need to be unleavened. That's 1 Corinthians 5 talks about. He says, you got leaven among you and you need to get it out. Purge the leaven from among you. He goes on, he says, and they feast with you without fear. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of pastors out there who actually are shepherds who are feeding themselves. I am thinking of one right now who is a shepherd that feeds himself. It's all about building up his life and his reputation. And he does not fear God. In fact, I've heard from his own mouth that fearing God is not like trembling. It's not like a dread or being terrified of God. It's simply just reverence and respect. Now let me just tell you, that's heresy. Because the Bible itself literally declares, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. And then the next verse is, Knowing the fear of the Lord then, we persuade others. 2 Corinthians 7 1 says that since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That Greek word for fear is phobos. It's where we get the English word phobia. These shepherds, as it's about to say, who are feeding themselves are people who are out there at people's love feasts. And they do not have a fear of God. And they are all about feeding themselves and gaining their own reputation. They are not about the glory of God. And they don't care to be told what what is truth. They're good with clinging to their own version of it. Like I said, I got a person in mind right now which I brought truth to him. And he wanted nothing to do with it. He goes on, he says, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds. You know what a waterless cloud is? If you have a crop and you look out on the horizon and you see a cloud coming on the way, all of a sudden there's going to be a little uh, of an excitement. It's like maybe there's some rain in that cloud. Maybe that's going to produce something useful for me so that this crop can get watered. And that cloud comes and it comes and it gets closer and it gets bigger and it gets bigger and then it hovers over top of you and there's no precipitation, nothing's falling from it and then it passes on and you're like, what the heck was that all about? A waterless cloud is a cloud that has no purpose. It has no benefit 
for what it's supposed to. Not only does it not produce something for the crop that it's useful for, or the produce something for, for what it should, but it also blocks the sunlight from getting to you. It's somebody who puts themselves between you and Jesus and says, hey, look at me. But they can produce nothing beneficial for you. There are many pastors out there like that. It says they're swept along by winds, which is a reference to a doctrinal thing in which they just go to and fro, whatever's going to benefit them. That's what their belief is going to be. It says fruitless trees and late autumn, exactly when the trees should be given fruit, they got nothing. Exactly when there should be a produce that's coming from these trees in late autumn, they got nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. What did Jesus do to the fig tree? Right? That didn't give him any fruit. He cursed it. It withered and it died. He goes on and says twice dead. Now let me just ask you something. How are these people eating with them if they're twice dead? I want you to understand something real quick. Being twice dead and yet still alive, there's only one possibility for that. Only one. It can't be anything else. To be twice dead while you're still alive and still breathing in a, in a physical human body, the only way to be twice dead is to have died once and died twice. And there's only one way to do that. When he says that a person must be born of the Spirit, that they've been crucified to their old way and now they walk in the newness of life, they've been resurrected in, in a spiritual body, if you will, they've come to a new salvation in, in Christ, that's the first death, is when their old man has been crucified with Christ. And the only way to have a second death is when that new man dies. Now, some people might not think that that's possible. I do. I believe that apostasy is that second death in which you don't have a hope to rise again. Exactly what he talks about in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through, 4 through 8. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the powers of the age to come, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, metekos, the Greek word, meaning they've become a partner or an associate with. It says, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. If they have apostatized from the faith, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. They are a wandering star just like Cain. A person who apostatized, which means a total desertion of the faith, it says that they cannot come back. First death is the old man finding the newness of life in Christ. Second death is that new man who found that life in Christ but chose to relinquish that and walk away and apostatize from the faith. He has now committed spiritual death of soul. To me, that's the only way to be twice dead while you're still alive. It says uprooted. You go into to Proverbs chapter 2 and go read that. In fact, I would highly encourage you to go do that. To be uprooted means that you had root. You took root in the soil. You were a tree that was planted. But now you've been uprooted from that soil. There's only one person who actually fits that. And that's an apostate. 
It said wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. Didn't we already talk about that with Cain? Here we say it again. People who now have no hope. Go read um, Hebrews 6, 6 through 8, the tail end of that, when he talks about that their end is to be burned. They have no hope. They have apostatized from the faith. They have no hope. There's nothing. They cannot come back because they'd have to crucify Jesus once again. And he's not coming to be crucified again. He goes on, he says, For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. He says, That's your end. Your end is to be burned. And every day that it approaches, it gets nearer and nearer and nearer. And you are a wandering star because you have apostatized from the faith. In my estimation, that's who these people are. They are people who have apostatized from the faith, but they're still trying to cling on to something of Jesus being a savior, if you will. Because I think there's different forms of apostasy. But all of it revolves around this one thing. They have rejected Jesus as the Lord of their life. What did it say at the beginning? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're no longer denying Him as Savior. They just don't want to do what He says anymore. So they're praising God at these love feasts, thinking that they don't have to fear God because Jesus has saved them. But they have no intention of doing what Jesus says anymore. That's how I see it. And maybe there's some things that I'm missing. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. But just understand that I'm not somebody who's going to hear your thoughts and your opinions absent of truth. And I'm not into circular reasoning and talking around questions. I want answers. It's like I try to talk to people all the time about Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And I always get people who say, well, maybe, maybe it means this or maybe it means that. Or, or they don't even address it and they just start sharing, rattling off other scriptures and say, well, what about this question? I'm, like, I'm asking you about Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. I have an answer for that verse that you just gave to me. I want to know what is Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 saying? Well, maybe, maybe it's hypothetical. No, it doesn't sound hypothetical to me. It sounds like a pretty big warning that he's given to them, especially on the heels of the last part of chapter 5. So if you want to share your thoughts, I would love to have biblical discussions and humility on this passage. But just understand, I'm not going to do circular reasoning and I'm not going to just hear your opinions and your perspectives absent of a foundation of truth. So this is how I see it. And I would love for discussion on this one, but let me just give you the same warning that Jude is giving to these beloved you better watch out for people who try to make Jesus a Savior only and not Lord. And though you might have once fully known it, you need to understand that God will judge His people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Y'all be blessed.